do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Bozo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. One of the most well-known rewilding examples in the world has recently started a regenerative farming enterprise. Join me to find out why, how, and what, and why they are starting now. Welcome to another episode of Investing in Regenerative Agriculture, Investing as if the Planet Mattered, a podcast show where I talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities and ecosystems while making an appropriate and fair return. Why my focus on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land, grow our food and what we eat. And it's time that we as investors, big and small and consumers, start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. In March last year, we launched our membership community to make it easy for fans to support our work. And so many of you have joined as a member. We've launched different types of benefits, exclusive content, Q&A webinars with former guests, Ask Me Anything sessions, plus so much more to come in the future. For more information on the different tiers, benefits and how to become a member, check gumroad.com slash egg or find the link below. Thank you. Welcome to a new episode today with Russ Carrington, manager of NEP Regenerative Farms. We interviewed Isabella Tree of NEP Rewilding before in August 2019, feels way longer, where we went very deep into rewilding. And I'm very happy to have Russ on the show today to dive deep into the regenerative farming side of the business. Welcome, Russ. Hi, glad to be here. So this is super fresh. You started in February. You've been working on this, obviously, a lot longer than that. But we dove deep into rewilding with Isabella back in the day. We also touched upon a bit on the farming side of things. But can you share a bit about your story and actually coming to NEP farming or NEP regenerative farming? Yeah, so I've been working with farmers all over the UK for the last 10 years or so in developing the UK's Pasture-Fed Livestock Association, which is a community of farmers, grazing farmers, developing a brand for their meat called Pasture for Life, and that brand is now applied to milk as well. We were a group of farmers working to build supply chains and reach consumers with products and find how they could be healthier for humans to eat, how they could be better for animal welfare uh, by managing those animals on a purely pasture diet. So I worked with lots of farmers that were kind of going through change from conventional grain feeding of livestock and moving to more holistic, naturally-led production systems where the animals weren't fed and the grains or inputs that were managed in tune with nature. So I, I really had a chance to understand what that change process was for farmers and to stand alongside many of them and help them through that change. And then had the opportunity to do that for myself, really, and to set up a farm, which I've, I've long since wanted to do, when I was approached by the Nepa State to develop the idea of their new regenerative farm. Yeah, and can you walk us a bit through how it looks like? Because we have the rewilding part, but there always has been a number of farms or a number of acres, also part of the estate, but they haven't been rewilded. So what has happened on those on those fields for the last 20, 30 years when the rest of the estate went through a very stark transition? Yeah, you're right. There's been about 10% of the estate which sits outside of the rewilding areas. 
And that's mainly because those areas are divided from the main areas by roads and a village and, and other highways and kind of physical infrastructure in the landscape that's kind of prevented them from being part of this this big area of rewilding. So they've been farmed in a sort of conventional sense. Some of them have been tenanted out to different graziers and they've had a range of different management over the last 10 to 15 years as the estate has stopped doing its active farming itself and relied more heavily on other people to manage that land. So what we've been doing for the last six months is to kind of free up a lot of that land and bring it into back into a single farming enterprise that we can now develop into something. But this whole idea of a farm alongside the rewilding project is a much bigger conversation around how we can restore nature on a landscape scale. So what we're really working to demonstrate and understand more of with what we're doing at NIP is actually how neighbouring parcels of land under very different management regimes can actually relate to one another and support nature recovery on a landscape scale. What I mean by that is how we can view areas of rewilding as real strongholds and refuges for nature and various wild species and how then we can manage our food producing land in a way that nurtures corridors and links and space for animals, wild species to travel from those areas, those strongholds, through into the landscape and to be more integrated and part of farming and food producing areas. And I remember with Isabella talking about the farming piece and do you know, maybe it's the wrong person to ask this question to, but do you know why now? What has made NEP decide to not just keep renting out the land for another five years or 10 years, but to take on another huge project because the farming piece is, even though it's between brackets 10% of the land, but it's a huge transition to take on this massive, massive other transition as well. That's right. It's a very good question. And I think NEP has had in mind to do something with this land for many years, in fact. And I was actually leading a group of farmers we brought down here about five years ago. So, and I remember at the time the owners were talking about how how this piece of land could be managed in a way that adds to and builds on the rewilding. And I think really the owners have said it's taken the time to find the right person, i.e. me, which I'm really privileged to be able to do, to help bring this together in a suitable way. And also there's a bigger conversation around the role that rewilding plays in the landscape and in farming and food production. And I think the discussion has become more and more heightened over recent years. More and more people are inspired to rewild, but then that has to be balanced with food production and how we feed the many mouths we have in the UK and beyond. And so it's kind of brought it up the agenda as being something more important for NEP to engage with. And so there's always been this opportunity sat there waiting for the right time. And I think the other things that's been quite a catalyst is one of the tenants on the farm was moving away. So there was some of the land was sort of coming back into the possibility of doing something with it. And it, yeah, everything sort of just came together. I was ready for something new and a change. And uh, yeah, we had a phone call last summer and um, we've been developing the conversation thereafter. And um, yeah, as you said, I was here starting in February to uh, really get the ball rolling. And because that's one of the main criticism or has been on rewilding, like you're not producing a lot of food. 
which is a whole different conversation because obviously the lands where you would be rewilding are not the most suitable for extreme food production, etc. But I think the discussion should then go to you. Okay, so how do you change the farming system, which obviously is something we discuss a lot on this podcast. So what are you trying to prove or to show with NEP farming or regenerative farming that is different from, for example, the mission of NEP wilding or other regenerative farms? Well, I think to be fair, the rewilding areas at NEP do produce quite a significant amount of food and that they are producing 75 tonnes of live weight meat per year. That's And just to give a comparison to what are you looking for to produce on NEP regenerative farming? Because it sounds like a lot, but then I don't know that. What's an average number that you've seen? How does it stack up against something else? Yeah, I mean, it's, it is very low production in comparison to an intensively managed farm. And I think we will, on the regenerative farm, we'll definitely be producing more. But what it does do is it, the net pre-wilding shows that you can produce a level of food, albeit not massive amounts of food. You can produce some whilst also delivering lots of other benefits for nature. Mm-hmm. And so there's lessons in there. It's not either or, there is a both. Exactly. And so what are the principles of that that we can then take to more of our farmland suited more for food production? And how can we integrate elements for nature and wilding within that space? So it's taking a lot of learnings from the wildings. And so, for example, on the regenerative farm, how do we create wild spaces for nature on those farms? How do we help nature into our fields through species diversity, healthier soils, and better marginal and edge management. So, for example, the edge of woodlands or the edge of fields with hedgerows and other features in the landscape. And trying to make more space and habitat for wild species using those rewilding principles. And walk us through, obviously we're audio, so you have to talk visually, but What's the current status of the land? I mean, there have been different tenants, so they're different as well. But like a general, what should we imagine if you haven't visited that area? How does it currently look? And how do you, let's say, hope it looks in five or 10 years time? What would be the, the shift we could see if we would visit now and we would or take a picture or film it and we'll come back in five or 10 years? Yeah, great. Well, we can describe a bit of a virtual walk here, but sort of setting out from the village and walking into fields that have been grazed by sheep in the past, and those those fields are very, the grass is very, very short because they've been grazed very tightly over the years. The hedgerows that we see on the side are in some ways bottomless. They have they have height, it's a shoulder height, but the, the sheep have been in the hedgerows, and the hedgerows are what we call is quite leggy. And so it feels a little bit stark and bare. And as we walk across those fields, it's squidgy, it's underfoot, and, and there's a lack of real rooting depth of rooting structure in those fields. But as we then might walk a little bit further into some of the other fields that have been grazed and managed differently, we see more tusky grass, more thatchy material underfoot, some bigger hedgerows that are kind of billowing out and, and turning into trees and lines of trees in places. And so there's elements there on a short virtual walk that are in need of improvement for nature, but also some elements like those hedgerows that have so much more potential and could be the great foundation for some more useful habitat for nature. So what we're doing over time and what we'd see walking through the same area in five years' time is to see the 
primarily those hedgerows are really more restored and that they are much thicker and provide more habitat in themselves and that we might see a range of different hedgerow shapes and structures and stages of growth. We'd see far more diversity within the fields, within the plant species, different flowering species. We'd see hopefully more livestock rotating and moving around and again providing lots of different grass structure and shape with insects following the livestock and and churning through the dung, perhaps some poultry there following behind the livestock, again working their way through the pastures and opening up some of the thatch and feeding on grubs the dung. And a real sense of there being more life in time and more more activity going on, more people involved on the land as well, more businesses starting up and being part of the regenerative farming journey, people visiting to come and understand what it is that we've been doing and are continuing to do. So I think people, or our hope is that in five years' time, there's much more of a buzz around or to be gained from walking through those fields. Literally, yeah. Yeah, very much so, yeah. So how big is the farm or the farms in terms of acres and what kind? I mean, you're still developing obviously a lot and it's going to be, I think, adjusted many, many times. But what are you currently planning to do, let's say this year, 2021, in terms of acres, in terms of graziers? How much livestock could we expect if we visit, I don't know, if we are allowed in the summer? Do you want to learn how to invest or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. So the farm area is 150 hectares at the moment. So just a little bit over 340 odd acres. And the land is in varying condition only about a third of it is currently fenced for grazing animals. So that's our real starting point, is the area that's fenced that we can graze from the cellar. The other areas we're going to work to fence and bring in water infrastructure so that we can then graze them in the next two to three years. And we're really working hard at the moment to kind of set our vision for nature on the farm and how our management practices will work with nature and we're going to be taking that to various bodies in the UK including Natural England who help support farming through through grant schemes known as countryside stewardship and we're going to be seeing how we can work with them and partner with them to help deliver our vision for nature so there'll be work to do if we're successful in doing that such as fencing and investing in the land investing in creating space for nature so it's kind of going to be transitioned. We're going to transition new enterprises in and then transition more land into the farming rotation, if you like. And the, so really the big projects this year in 2021 are to establish the beef herd and get that mob grazing around the farm. And mob grazing is where we're going to be grouping animals together and moving them around with the help of electric fencing, but also virtual fencing as well. We're going to be trialing some GPS collars um, using the no fence system from Norway. Super exciting. Yeah, really exciting. We had um, fence on the podcast, I think a month or two ago. I will put it in the in the show notes as well. The virtual fencing, I think we have to explain it again for people that, that didn't listen to that one or, or don't know what no fence is. 
but walk us through that and what kind of, if it works, obviously when it works, because it's all uh, relatively early, but what kind of possibilities that would give you as a manager? Yeah. So the no fence systems work on a GPS collar that hangs around the animal's neck and it's very lightweight. It's got a small solar panel on it that keeps batteries charged and it can GPS locate where that animal is. And then through a mobile app device, the farmer or grazier is able to control where that animal goes or the boundaries for grazing area. And the way the collar works to keep animals within that boundary is that as an animal might get close to the boundary they get an audio warning or emits a sound the animal's here to indicate that they shouldn't really go any further because if they do keep going further and they ignore the audio warnings they then will receive a small electric pulse through the contact with the collar around the necks which will be enough to deter them as they would if they were to get to an electric fence And then so they start to associate this audible sound with the possibility of a small electric pulse and then turn back the other way. So what it enables us to do is to more interestingly manage the grazing in some of the areas where we want to encourage more space for nature or more diverse habitats. So we can, rather than having permanent fences where we might have that against a hedgerow, a particular area that's a very hard boundary, we can actually be much more flexible with that boundary and target grazing in some of those areas at certain times of the year, such as when it might be the right time for certain species, such as the brown hair strip butterfly that lays its eggs at certain times of the year in the late summer. And so we might want to keep those animals out of those areas in the late summer. We might want to rise more heavily at other times of the year. And so we can use those collars to more interestingly interact with the nature corridors that we're creating. The other thing is that we can use them in a more managed grazing sense. If we want to, as we would with mob grazing, electric fencing, we can use those collars to move the animals around more in tighter mobs. And that's going to be a big part of what we're going to be doing. And and the rest periods that come from keeping animals out of certain areas for long periods of time. And I think also because you mentioned before, only part of the farm is currently fenced and that would require a lot of money and time to get that completely permanently fenced or even partly uh, like semi-permanently fenced. And this potentially unlocks a lot of that land to actually be grazed in certain times and moments, etc., without bringing in all that infrastructure that comes with fencing. That's right. And fencing is very expensive, but we've sort of actively taken the decision that we would still like to have a physical fence around the whole area and especially mm-hmm. where we've got grazing land next to roads and highways just in case yeah (laughs) just in case exactly but there are some people in the uk using these collars without any hard fencing between quite busy areas but it's not a risk we're quite prepared to take yet we're still early on (laughs) yeah yeah exactly we really want to test out the collars fully before we before we venture that far so but then there'll be no fencing internally so we've got several areas that kind of can be ring fenced it's not all on one chunk altogether, but where we can ring fence areas, we won't have any fencing in between in the in-between fields, although there are hedgerows there. We won't need to have permanent fencing. We can use the virtual fencing or electric fencing where appropriate to uh, provide that boundary in a semi-temporary way. And in terms of impact on, let's say, the neighbours, the farmers nearby, I mean, of course, the rewilding project has uh, Isabella shared that 
got a lot of negative feedback at the beginning or the first decade plus people definitely not agreeing to what was happening or not understanding, not seeing it, et cetera, et cetera. And now that seemed to have flipped to a certain extent. This might be a less of a, a wild transition or less of a, a leap compared to rewilding, but still it's very different from, I'm imagining how some of the neighbors are managing their land. How do you see connecting to them, incorporating that into what, what do you see as your role there beyond the virtual or the real fence? Yeah, very interesting point. And I would say in my previous experience as well, the whole discussion has moved on around what's right and, and what's better for land management. And so more and more farmers, I think, are more receptive of the idea of rewilding or at the very least making space for nature in their farms. I think society as a whole is seeing how much more important that is now. But what we're actively doing here is already talking to the neighbours beyond the land that I'm managing. And we're talking to those neighbours about how they might be part of this landscape scale restoration for nature as well. So as we're creating corridors and space for nature across the regenerative farm that link from the area of rewilding, how can we continue those corridors on through the farm, up into the landscape through the neighbour's land? And that's not about creating highways for beavers or, or eagles, but it's about creating pathways for some of our smaller wild species, such as bats, toads and amphibians and dormice and other significant species which are in need of our help really to recover their populations. How did those conversations go? Yeah, really good actually. I I think the neighbours here, they've become receptive of what NEP has to offer. They've seen how NEP has become successful and they're now listening which is really good. And so, you know, they're being quite creative as well in conversation with them about how could they link up with us and how could they connect, I don't know, a a hedgerow or row of trees or some physical feature that links to a feature that we've got on our land. So it's taking away the ownership boundaries that may prevent collaboration, may prevent cross-boundary thinking and actually thinking much bigger on a landscape scale how these corridors and connections can be harnessed and uh, nurtured. Which is absolutely fundamental, yeah. Yes, it is. But it's perhaps worth highlighting that this is also the direction in which future agricultural policy in the UK is moving, with the, obviously, leaving the European Union, we're moving out of the common agricultural policy, developing our own domestic agricultural policy. And part of that is likely to be the Environmental Land Management Scheme, or ELMS as it's known. And that is still being formed at the moment, but being piloted in a few different ways. And and the direction of travel with that is around how land managers and farmers are able to provide ecosystem services and, and public goods for society, such as increased biodiversity, cleaner air, cleaner water, and other elements that farming can help society with. So... Although all of the answers aren't there yet as to how that policy is going to work, the direction of travel is around these uh, the public goods and ecosystem services. So we're kind of really trying to align ourselves to that now and work towards it so that as the policy is released, we're in a better position. And so our, our neighbours as well, there's a real sense of let's work together and get ourselves ready for the future. Farming's a long-term game, so we need to be putting these plans in place now 
And how much of the decision to move towards regenerative farming do you think comes because of that, because of the potential, let's say, tailwind from political support, policies changing, payment schemes changing? How much of that has helped like to time it basically now? And not a few years ago when this was way more unclear, basically. Yeah, it's really helping, actually. The policy changes are definitely moving it in the right direction. There could be questions about the pace of that. There always are. Yeah, Yeah, and whether a lot of the promises we're hearing, farmers are hearing now, will actually come into reality, as as we've seen in the past. Lots of good ideas get held up in bureaucracy and, and lead to unintended consequences. But it's definitely helping. And the fact that a main income source in terms of our basic payment scheme, that that's being phased out over the next five to six years. That's a big, big thing for farming business models. So I think it's making almost all farmers sit up and think, right, how do we restructure our businesses to make them future ready? And so that's providing a really good environment for farmers to be rethinking and reevaluating their mindsets and approaches to how they manage their land. And for me, that's what's needed to create these changes. Absolutely. And as it is such an exciting time now, I think we can say for farming and food in the UK for, let's say, let's imagine there's a room or a theater full of smart impact investors and smart investors listening in and understanding this, or at least they've read the books, they visited maybe NEP, they visited farms and they want to get into the space or they want to start to deploy capital. You as a farmer, obviously not giving investment advice, But as a manager, as somebody that manages land and is managing a lot more, quite a big chunk of it, actually, what would be your, like your travel direction? Where would you point them to look, to learn more, to dive into, and maybe to even consider putting some money to work? It's a really hard question, actually. (laughs) That's why we run a podcast of 120 (laughs) interviews. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really interesting question, actually, because in my mind, many of the solutions or motivating factors to enable farmers to move to more regenerative systems are not product-based, they're not tech-based so much. They're knowledge-based, skill-based. And I think there's two ways of looking at that, really, because I've seen lots of uh, sort of tech solutions coming in to agriculture, and, and many of them are proven very useful, but I think many are adding a cost that may not be necessary and don't necessarily lead to the right outcomes. But instead, and as is often said, and I think it's perhaps it was Benjamin Franklin who first coined the phrase that the best investment is an investment in knowledge. And I would really like to see more investment in farmer knowledge and assistance with mindset and mindset change as to how, because that is where the real solutions lie, I believe. Farmers know their land, they know their farms are the best people to lead the change. But very often, as I've found, they're perhaps lacking the knowledge or the confidence to try something new and approach things in a different way. So for me, that's the area that needs investment is on knowledge and, and perhaps even how that knowledge is better shared between one another, between farmers, between peers, and the process of continual knowledge gaining or learning beyond what might be agricultural education up to the age of 20 whatever, but it's sort of a lifelong process, farming. And I think there needs to be more recognition of that and how farmers that have been out of formal education for 20 years can return to learning new knowledge and new ways of doing things. And so how would you, let's say you're in charge of a large investment fund 
and quite a large one, let's say a billion dollars or a billion euros or a billion pounds, what would be your top priority? I'm imagining education, but how would you approach that? Let's say the investment conditions can be extremely long-term, but it has to come back at some point, preferably with some kind of return, but also that you can choose. So what would be your focus in the education piece if you had a large resource base, basically? I think one of the best ways to spend money, although it may not give enough of a return for what you have in mind, but I think one of the best ways is to invest in people skills. And in particular, I'm thinking about facilitators, people that can facilitate conversations between farmers and one-to-one as well to help farmers change and adapt. And then as a result, I think we will see farmers better connected and farming better delivering against the objectives we need for the future, be that food production, benefits to nature, and also profitability for businesses. And so as a wider society, if we've got those right skills in society helping farmers and key land managers to learn and be better at leading their businesses in in future-ready ways, then society will will benefit from that investment. That's where that return will come. How that benefits the individual investor, I don't know, but I see an increased upturn in, in economic value as a result of investment in society. So the challenge there would be to, I think many are trying to figure it out as well, in general in education, Is there a business model for the entrepreneur and the investor, not just for society, because that one is out of the question, obviously, because any investment in education usually has an enormous impact on society. So how could you finance that, still Mm -hmm. have some kind of financial return beyond all the impact return, obviously, you're making on the farms, on the farmers, on the land, and and thus on society as well? It's not an easy challenge, but I think people have to, because it keeps coming back in this podcast as well, the farmer education, the farmer knowledge is something that has enormous opportunities and hasn't been cracked completely or hasn't lived up to its potential until now. Mm-hmm. And if you could change one thing overnight, so you have a magic wand, which gives you not the investment fund anymore, that unfortunately we took that away, but you have a magic power where you could actually change something in agriculture and food overnight. What would that be? I think it would be mindsets. I think there's a lot of value in readdressing those mindsets. And it being a much firmer foundation for farmers to deliver against future needs. I'm not critiquing farmers for where they're at at the moment, but farming is a really hard career and often it's an isolating one. And so in my experience, it's been instrumental for many farmers to be able to link with other farmers and have their mindsets challenged and that isolation taken away. And the great thing about the internet and Email systems is that we're able now to connect from remote places across the UK and connect in central online platforms. That makes such a difference to farmers' approaches to new ideas and new ways of doing things. No, I think it's we are underestimating the power of that connection and also the accessibility of knowledge and the easiness. Of course, very often with very slow internet connections, as soon as you are in rural areas, but the access to a lot of this knowledge wasn't there 10 years ago or 15 years ago, let alone 20 when some people started or 30. And now there is maybe even too much, but there's a lot of free and very, very cheap online education available. The, the issue is w- what's right for you and where does it meet you in your part of the journey and in your right mindset, because otherwise it just bounces off because it's just too far out there or not enough, not challenging enough. Exactly. Yeah. And it can be as much a problem when there are so many ideas 
banging <laughs> around and so many things to get involved with. You could spend your life just going to conferences on these, these topics. <laughs> and it's, there's something about kind of knowing the direction of travel and knowing what's relevant. And sometimes that comes back to having a strong vision and a strong understanding of future direction for people. If that's lacking, then can turn into a scattergun approach, trying lots of different things when sometimes it's good to know where things are headed or where, where you as the business, the farmer needs to head. And what do you believe to be true about regenerative agriculture that others don't believe to be true? And this question is definitely inspired by a question John Kempf likes to ask in his podcast. But in this case, what do you believe, where are you contrarian basically when it comes to regenerative agriculture? I think for me, the one thing that I'm seeing talked about a lot at the moment is kind of what is regenerative agriculture and some people and organizations are kind of putting quite definitive definitions on it. Whereas I see regenerative agriculture more about being a direction, a direction of travel, and it's not about a specific goal, but it's about taking on board principles and ways of working that regenerate the land every year, building on the previous year. And so there's no set uh, set endpoint. It's all about the journey, really, and, and building our farms, building nature on our farms, and building the value to society of our entire landscapes countryside yeah i see that it's very interesting people trying to find a definition for something that if you talk to any advanced regenerative farmer or farmer that are actually when i say it it doesn't make sense but where farmers that are applying regenerative approaches and practices they say it's never done you're never done you always have another five ten or mm -hmm. maybe even more years probably more years to go And it's not an endpoint. It's not a binary question. But everybody is asking, what's the definition? And actually, the the truth of the matter is, there is no definition because that would mean that there is like you either are or you're not. No, there. It's a journey. It's a continuum, as as Ethan Soloviev says very nicely. Like it's not like somewhere between degenerative and regenerative. And but then you go beyond and you keep adding more trees to the system. You keep changing practices. You keep increasing biodiversity. Hopefully, increasing soil carbon to a certain extent, increasing diversity in general, increasing life, basically, as you said earlier in, in the interview. It never finishes. It's not that you say in 10 years, okay, maybe you're done there, but the land isn't done. That's right. And it's what makes the rewilding at NEP a really interesting place, because what is that regenerating and what's most relevant to society now in this day and age? There's a strong balance towards regenerating nature perhaps less so for food, whereas on the regenerative farm, it's a little bit the inverse of that. So it's good to question what is it we're actually trying to regenerate, because there are many, many different ways of measuring that. But as a whole, if different areas are regenerating different things as a whole, then if the balance for nature or, or health or society is being lifted, then that's a good thing. And so having diversity of approaches is also a good thing. And you bring up measurement, and this might be a rabbit hole, but what are you going to be, or what are you measuring at net regenerative farms? Yeah, great question. I've actually tried to do this in a bit of a diagram, which people can see on the NEP website, the pages of the regenerative agriculture, and actually try to illustrate all of the different areas that we are going to be measuring. And there's a real major focus on the natural capital side of things, lots of different things to do with water quality, water quantity, soil, soil carbon, soil health, and then biodiversity from plant species through to animals, insects, and other significant indicators of success. Key things perhaps being 
things like dung beetles. Dung beetles are very crucial to livestock systems in how they feed a part of uh, the animal's dung, but also then how they support carbon sequestration through their tunnelling and underground activities, and how they support bats, for example, as their predators, and bats playing a role in our ecology. So all those sort of things. And then we're also measuring the economic performance in quite a bit of detail of the business. How much is it costing to set up? What's it costing to run? How is our performance as a business in terms of output and margin? We're going to be benchmarking a lot of that with industry data across from across the UK. And then some of the more softer societal side of things. How are we able to improve or impact the health and nutrition of the food we're producing so beef initially and eggs at some point and our market garden as well which i hadn't yet mentioned how we can improve the number of people we're feeding off this land how we're perhaps helping people to develop their skills give access to green spaces and all of these things which again i think are really relevant to future agricultural policy because in measuring them we'll be able to evidence what it is we're actually delivering for the environment, for society and for nature. Yeah, and you'll be able to do that from year zero, basically, or T0. Exactly, yeah. Which in many of these processes, and I think in rewilding, um, probably a lot of those things would have been amazing to do that 25 years ago, but just wasn't the case. It wasn't the time then to do it. And now looking back, you can see the changes, but it would have been amazing to see, I don't know, soil carbon changes as well, which wasn't the thing that back in the day. But some others, yeah, you would love to go back in time and set up a few cameras as well and, and, and follow a lot of these things. But now you have the chance to do that on all the different pieces of land that have been managed differently and are now being obviously transitioned as well to see those changes. Yeah, exactly. And it's really interesting, isn't it, that the fact that when the rewilding and started, that soil just wasn't a thing. <laughs> now everybody in this space is talking about soil health. And it's amazing to think back that it, that it wasn't relevant back then. And so that was a real regret of, of the owners, the Burrell family, not to have been able to um, get a better handle on some of those things. And it's made us think now, if we're baselining now, what are the things we should be measuring now that we don't think are relevant, but in five, ten years time will be? Anything that comes to mind? Not really. Because <laughs> that's the difficult one, like the unknown unknowns. Are, are... Yeah, exactly. We're trying to take a really broad view and so that if there is something we've forgotten to measure that actually we can relate it to something else, that there might be other indicators and proxies for those other things. And so what I mean by that, for example, is by taking a keen interest in dung beetles, because they play such a role in our pasture ecosystems for things happening in the soil, but also in the air, such as bats, they could be a real indicator for other species that, I don't know, we might discover in 10 years' time there's another key species that is really dependent on on dung beetles as a food source but so we can use those dung beetles as a proxy in that example yeah i think that's extremely difficult but extremely like you have to cast the widest net possible and hope you catch the few things that we're going to be focusing on as proxies in, in 10 15 years and beyond i want to thank you so much russ for your time today and wish you all the luck obviously with this enormous transition it's going to be a very very busy year and i'm looking forward to checking in when things are underway and, and seeing how much of the vision is working, what is adjusted, what is changing and how things are transitioning on the net regenerative farms. Yeah, well, you've, you've caught us right at the beginning. So I'm doing a lot of theorizing about what we've got planned and, uh, you know, we might hit a big stumbling block. It's a good T0, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But I think 
even if we, I'm for sure we will encounter problems, and I think this is something people shouldn't be afraid of, is then how we deal with those problems, how we overcome them, are almost more important. They're almost where more of the learning and magic actually happens. So you'll have to come back and we'll speak again to find out more about that in future years. And visit, definitely. Absolutely, yes. Yes, very well, welcome. If you would like to learn more on how to put money to work in regenerative food and agriculture, find our video course on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course. This course will teach you to understand the opportunities, to get to know the main players, to learn about the main trends and how to evaluate a new investment opportunity, like what kind of questions to ask. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course. If you found the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast valuable, there are a few simple ways you can use to support it. Number one, rate and review the podcast on your podcast app. That's the best way for other listeners to find the podcast, and it only takes a few seconds. Number two, share this podcast on social media or email it to your friends and colleagues. Number three, if this podcast has been of value to you, and if you have the means, please join my membership community to help grow this platform and allow me to take it further. You can find all the details on gumroad.com slash investingregionag or in the description below. Thank you so much and see you at the next podcast.